This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. I'm Emma. And I'm Liam. Over the last few episodes, we've discussed cardiovascular complications and how best to manage their risk with the collaboration of cardiologists. This week, we're moving on to renal outcomes and how to reduce the risk of diabetic kidney disease. We'll first discuss the evidence and guidelines surrounding renal risk in type 2 diabetes, and then we'll be joined by our guest this week, Dr. David Cherney. Dr. Cherney is Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and a clinician scientist at the University Health Network and Mount Sinai Hospitals, where he is Director of the Renal Physiology Laboratory, and his research programme focuses on the development of renal disease and diabetes. Dr. Cherney's disclosures and links to the references discussed today are available in the episode notes. Diabetes is associated with an increased risk of chronic kidney disease, renal insufficiency and albuminuria. As with cardiovascular risk, there is a legacy effect observed, described by Merlin Thomas in his 2014 review and in a 2019 cohort study by Nader Leitirapong and colleagues, where poor glucose control early on in the disease course can cause irreversible damage later on. This can increase the future risk of macro and microvascular disease, including kidney disease. Therefore, early glucose control is paramount for reducing the risk of developing kidney disease, but it's important to consider other risk factors to reduce progression where microvascular damage has already occurred, particularly in older patients and those with long-standing diabetes. Risk factors independently associated with renal damage include hypertension, obesity and dyslipidemia. The Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes, KDIGO, Diabetes Workgroup, recommends in its 2020 guideline that all patients be treated with a comprehensive multifactorial strategy addressing these factors in order to reduce the risk of kidney disease progression. Looking first at lifestyle interventions, the KDIGO guideline provides specific advice on diet and physical activity, as well as smoking cessation. This includes a recommendation of at least 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical exercise and that all patients are offered support in these areas as part of their management plan. Regarding blood pressure and lipids, detailed information on appropriate targets is provided in the European Society of Cardiology guideline, which we discussed in the recent episode on cardiovascular risk factors. In summary, the recommendation is to target systolic blood pressure to 130 millimetres of mercury for most people, or lower for those who can tolerate it, to a lower limit of 120. For those aged 65 or older, the target should be between 130 and 139. Lipid targets are individualised according to the person's individual cardiovascular risk, So if they're considered at very high, high or moderate risk, they should target LDL-C to below 1.4, 1.8 or 2.6 millimoles per litre respectively. KDGO recommends that in patients with diabetes, hypertension and albuminuria, treatment with an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin II receptor blocker should be initiated and that these therapies may also be considered in patients with albuminuria who have normal blood pressure. The guideline also recommends treatment with a statin for most patients over the age of 18 who have microalbuminuria. 
Guidelines, including those of the ADA, EASD and Cadigo, now recommend nephroprotective agents in people with CKD, regardless of their current HbA1c level or target. SGLT2 inhibitors have the largest evidence base in this area. Secondary outcomes from the EMPA-REG outcome CANVAS and DECLARE TIMI58 trials showed improvements in renal outcomes for participants who were at relatively low risk for progression to kidney failure. So the CREDENCE trial was set up to test the effects of canagliflozin in people with type 2 diabetes and albuminuric kidney disease. The trial was halted early when an interim analysis showed a clear benefit for the primary renal composite outcome. More recently, data from the DAPA-CKD trial showed a nephroprotective benefit of dapagliflozin in people with CKD but without diabetes. Based on these data, Cadigo recommends giving an SGLT2 inhibitor alongside metformin to all people with type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease who have an EGFR of at least 30 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared with the addition of other antihyperglycemic medication as needed, preferentially a GLP-1 receptor agonist. The American Diabetes Association, or ADA, in its 2021 Standards of Care, updated its existing treatment algorithm for type 2 diabetes to include a dedicated pathway for people with kidney disease. The guideline recommends that patients with albuminuria, so who are at high risk of chronic kidney disease progression, should be offered an SGLT2 inhibitor, preferably one with primary evidence of reducing the progression of CKD. Unlike the KDGO, the ADA now recommends this be done independently of metformin use. The guidelines also differ slightly for patients with an EGFR below 60, in that the ADA recommends either a GLP-1 receptor agonist with proven cardiovascular benefit or an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit. Evidence for a nephroprotective effect of GLP-1 receptor agonists has so far been less strong than that of SGLT2 inhibitors. So how should these recommendations be implemented in real-world clinical practice, and what other risk factors should we consider when helping patients to manage their renal risk? Joining us this week to discuss these questions is Dr David Cherney. Dr Cherney is Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and a clinician scientist at the University Health Network and Mount Sinai Hospitals, where his research focuses on the physiological mechanisms behind the development of renal disease in diabetes. Hi, Dr. Cherney. Thanks very much for joining me today. So let's start by looking at people with diabetes, but with no other additional risk factors. So if we look at this group of patients, what's the best way for them to limit their risk of developing renal disease in the future? Yeah, so uh, uh, patients with uh, diabetes who uh, are at relatively low risk at baseline, um, uh, that's a very uh, important and interesting question and involves uh, both uh, sort of older strategies and potentially some newer strategies as well. So uh, in terms of reducing kidney disease risk in people with diabetes, there are factors that include uh, blood pressure control, uh, maintenance of, of uh, good glycemic control as well. So typically for blood pressure, less than 130 over 80 in most jurisdictions. And then glycemic control, typically less than 7% in most patients, except if they have a lot of comorbidities. Um, and um, of course, maintenance of a healthy body weight <clears throat> is also important if that's at all possible, and that can be achieved both in terms of lifestyle modification and potentially 
uh, pharmacotherapy, and then uh, control of other of other risk factors, uh, including cardiovascular risk factors. But importantly, we also uh, tend to use uh, blockers of the renin-angiotensin system in those patients, particularly early on in people with type 2 diabetes, because of both the uh, renal protection, protective effects of those therapies, especially for initiation of disease around reducing, for example, the new onset of microalbuminuria. Uh, and then also, of course, to reduce blood pressure with those therapies, and then finally to reduce, um, to reduce uh, cardiovascular risk in patients with multiple risk factors. Uh, but beyond that, we now have data with other therapies, such as uh, such as with SGLT2 inhibitors, and uh, there's there there aren't, of course, dedicated trials in patients with you know no risk factors for kidney disease or very low risk factor profiles, except from secondary or exploratory analyses from the cardiovascular safety studies. Probably the best is uh, is from is from Declare, whereby we have the, the you know the healthiest kidney patients. Uh, across the different CVOTs and also patients who have uh, lots of uh, multiple risk factors but don't necessarily have established cardiovascular disease. And there is uh, very supportive data from that trial and from other cardiovascular outcome trials that involved patients with lower uh, kidney risk that demonstrated that there are uh, effects that are beneficial around uh, progression of albuminuria, but also around kidney composite outcomes. So there's a very strong rationale for the use of these therapies even earlier in the natural history of the disease, whereby there isn't necessarily albuminuria, but there appears to be still a cardiovascular and a renal protective effects uh, even early on in the disease. And then finally, there are similar data in uh, in patients who uh, have been enrolled into the cardiovascular outcome trials and safety trials with GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, those patients also being at quite low risk overall for kidney disease progression. But there are some nice exploratory analyses that have been done that have shown uh, benefits around, for example, progression of albuminuria, and also in, in uh, with the GLP-1 receptor agonist studies, also a reduction in some subgroups of losing significant kidney function. So there's very nice either secondary or exploratory data from these trials with newer therapies showing that when added to standard of care, there is a benefit around reducing kidney risk. So very exciting. Now, if we consider people with early signs of renal insufficiency or several risk factors such as hypertension, how would you recommend approaching multifactorial management with these people? Uh, would you suggest normalizing all of the risk factors simultaneously, or would you instead set some incremental goals with them? Yeah, so typically, uh, typically incremental um, in most patients, and that's because a lot of those targets have to be reached uh, with with pharmacotherapies, and we we tend to avoid um, you know layering therapies on top of one another at the same time because. Uh, then if patients have side effects, we don't know the culprit. It could be, for example, their glucose-lowering therapy, or it could be their blood pressure-lowering therapy that made them feel weak and dizzy. So it's important, I think, to layer these therapies um, you know, uh, in, a, in an expedited way, but at the same time, do them sequentially in most patients most of the time because we do want to be able to tease apart side effects and make sure that patients tolerate these therapies well so that um, so that we, they don't have an undue uh, side effect burden over time. So and then in terms of what to target, overall the uh, the targets are 
very similar to what I outlined before for these lower lower risk patients, uh, with the exception that perhaps we may also follow a target like uh, albuminuria, for example, in someone who has albuminuria at baseline to see whether there is a reduction in that surrogate marker of kidney risk. Uh, and furthermore, if someone is having uh, progressive loss of kidney function over time, that may also be something that's followed a little bit more frequently than someone who has, you know, a GFR of over 90, for example, or who has a much lower renal risk profile. So there may be some subtle differences, but overall, the approach is generally pretty similar, um, with the exception that we may, uh, you know, add additional therapies a little bit earlier, for example, an SGLT2 inhibitor in someone with, uh, with higher levels of albuminuria baseline. Thank you. So we've discussed hypertension and you mentioned body weight earlier as a risk factor for kidney disease among people with diabetes. But what other modifiable risk factors are worth targeting in these groups of patients? Yeah, so, uh, so we talked about blood pressure. We talked about, um, we talked about uh, glycemic control. Um, albuminuria is, is a risk factor that is um, both associated, associated with cardiorenal risk and also a reduction in albuminuria also tends to correlate quite closely with improvements in cardiorenal risk in response to a therapy. So that's another, another, um, another important marker that we tend to follow in a nephrology practice as an example. Um, and then body weight also is important and, and maintenance of a healthy body weight is also very important, has been shown to uh, reduce cardiovascular risk and to reduce kidney risk. And importantly, not only are there uh, lifestyle modification uh, strategies that work in that, but there are also existing and emerging uh, pharmacotherapy strategies that also work. Uh, for example, we see uh, we've seen that both um, uh, conventional dose and also high dose of the GLP-1 receptor agonists um, have uh, significant effects on body weight, as an example, and there is a high likelihood that there will be um, concordant reductions in factors like blood pressure and factors like albuminuria with those substantial body weight losses. So those are other areas that I think are important that we'll see a lot more of as we see newer therapies, such as uh, the dual agonist strategies and high-dose GLP-1 receptor agonists in the future, which is very exciting, not only from a metabolic perspective, but also for you know uh, nephrology practice, cardiology practice, and for primary care. So there's a lot of overlap in terms of the use and also the overlap in terms of where these therapies will benefit around target organ systems. Now, if we move on to talk a little bit about guidelines, specifically KDGO and the ADA guidelines, which do have a few differences between them, are there any data that would suggest expected differences in patient outcomes between these guidelines when you put them into practice? Yeah, that's a it's an interesting it's a spec it's it's, it's speculative of course because we, we we probably won't have trials that actually um, look at these kinds of outcomes that are dedicated to to tease these questions apart. However, I think there is going to be a lot of um, a lot of uh, future work around exploratory secondary analyses from trials looking at, for example, uh, renal benefits and cardiovascular benefits in patients who are either on metformin at baseline or those patients who are not on metformin at baseline, and whether there are differences around cardiovascular risk and kidney risk um, with therapies such as SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists and others. 
And, and I think the, the data so far generally suggests that whether or not you're on a metformin at baseline, which is one of the big differences between uh, KDGO and, and other guidelines, uh, whereby KDGO recommends metformin plus an SGLT2 inhibitor in someone with diabetic kidney disease um, versus other guidelines that suggest more of a, of a sequential um, add-on, that most of the analyses that have re reported outcomes in those with um, or not on uh, metformin would suggest the benefits are similar with these newer therapies. So, I mean, that could be looked at in a couple of different ways, right? You could you could say on the one hand, well, most patients in these trials were on metformin. So, so most of the data is on patients who were on metformin as a background therapy. On the other hand, if there, if meta-analyzed data suggests that the results are pretty similar, if you are or are not on metformin, that suggests that you could maybe drop the metformin and just have one drug and reduce pill burden and cost and all of those other issues. So I think those are the two sides of the coin and which one will win out um, probably will be a matter of discussions with patients and explaining these relative weight, uh, these relative risks and benefits and, and, and make, and coming to up with a solution with the patient uh, based on their individual preferences. So I think that that's what it'll likely come down to in the future. I do think that some patients will choose to come off uh, metformin and just be on a monotherapy at GLP-1 or an SGLP-2 because it does minimize pill burden and cost and side effects. Do you have any advice for both primary care providers and diabetes specialists on how they can help people with diabetes to manage their renal risk? Yeah, so I, I think one of the, there are a couple of key messages. The first key message is that um, is that these therapies, and if we're just really focusing on on uh, SGLT2 inhibitors right now, these therapies can absolutely be started by uh, any uh, healthcare practitioner, any physician in this area, whether a specialist or, or in primary care, we understand more and more that these therapies are safe, they're well tolerated, the, uh, the changes in kidney function that they induce are you know, not concerns in terms of risk for kidney injury or safety. So these are very safe therapies that can be started very easily and they're, and they're generally very well tolerated. So those are, I think a, that's a key message because that should help us become more comfortable with these therapies as sort of a, an ACE inhibitor equivalent, you could almost call it, because it, it, it has all of these you know, non-glycemic effects that impact the heart and the kidney that are independent of the glycemic effects. So I think that's an important message, and it's an important message in, in terms of the, their use by, by nephrologists and cardiologists too, because of their specific and very ubiquitous renal protective and cardiovascular protective effects. So nephrologists and cardiologists should be just as comfortable as an endocrinologist in using these therapies. And I think that's the, that's going to be the same for primary care in the future. So that's one sort of overarching message. I think we're going to be see, I think we're going to see in the future similar approaches with other therapies. Um, hopefully the flow trial will show benefits with, uh, with a GLP-1 receptor agonism. And if that's the case, we'll then have to um, think about how to make GLP-1 receptor agonists more ubiquitous in, in terms of specialty use and in primary care. And then in the in the shorter term, we also have this very exciting new therapy, finerenone, which uh, uh, showed both renal and cardiovascular protective effects on top of an ACE inhibitor or an ARB in the Fidelio trial. So I, I think one of the important messages for the, this audience is that uh, nephrology hopefully is going to become almost like a heart failure management strategy, whereby we layer these therapies on top of one another 
to to incrementally shave off the residual risk that patients with kidney disease have. We talked in the beginning of this uh, session about uh, conventional therapies like uh, blood pressure control, A1C, and the use of an ACE inhibitor or ARB. All of those therapies reduce kidney risk, but patients still have lots of risk of progression. If we add an SGLT2 inhibitor, and we know that from the Credence trial and from the DAPA-CKD trial, we know that we further reduce kidney risk, but patients still go on to develop endpoints over time. We always reduce risk. We don't eliminate it. And so by adding finerenone, which is probably going to be the next tool in the toolbox to fight diabetic kidney disease, we will hopefully further you know, reduce the risk of kidney disease progression and also do so in a, a safe way as possible. And then finally, in the future, maybe we'll have other new therapies like GLP-1 receptor agonists that are used for kidney disease specifically rather than for glycemic control. And then maybe we'll have other newer therapies on top of that, like antifibrotics or other new therapies that will further reduce kidney risk so that we can put people like me uh, uh, you know, out of part of our job, which is, which is dialysis, which we all hope we, we, uh, we, we in the future don't have to do anymore for patients because they don't need it. So I think that's all of our, that's our goal. And one of the ways we do that is by safely and effectively layering these therapies on top of one another, kind of like we do in the heart failure world right now. So I think that's a, an important take home that will hopefully um, uh, help us to understand how to use these therapies better down the road. Are there any other key takeaway messages that you think are important on this topic for our audience? No, I think that last question was really nice and broad <clears throat> and captures not just the current field, but where the field is going. I think um, a really important uh, theme that's going to continue to be important is to uh, understand how these therapies work. That, that applies to SGLT2 inhibitors, to MRAs, to GLP-1s, and to um, in understanding how they work, understanding how to use them together. That's going to be one really important area down the road. Also to understand how to, how to mitigate their side effect profiles. All medications have side effects. And so uh, fortunately, these therapies appear to be very safe and well tolerated, but there are some side effects with, with each of these uh, agents and classes. So uh, regardless of background training or specialty, we, we all have to be comfortable with their, with their at some, most of the time, uh, you know, minor, but sometimes common side effects like genital tract infections with SGLT2 inhibitors, and then uh, the potential for hyperkalemia with the MRAs, which appears to be relatively modest. Uh, we just have to get used to how to, how to managing those kinds of um, issues. And with, for example, the MRAs, we're fortunate because we have new uh, new potassium binders that are very effective as well and well tolerated. So that that will hope us hopefully allow us to use um, medications that block the renin angiotensin system very broadly. I should say the renin angiotensin aldosterone system very broadly, uh, while at the same time mitigating hyperkalemia risk and then avoiding side effects with the other therapies um, uh, that I discussed before. So that, that I guess that's all I wanted to add. That was a great summary. So thanks again for talking to me today, Dr. Chani. It was a real pleasure. My pleasure too. And thanks for including me. It's always, it's always good to chat with your group. In summary, given the multifactorial nature of renal risk factors, a comprehensive approach is needed to help people with diabetes reduce their risk of developing kidney disease. And this should address factors such as lifestyle, blood pressure, body weight, blood lipids, and presence of albuminuria. 
existing data support the use of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II receptor blockers and SGLT2 inhibitors for nephroprotection in people with kidney disease or who are at high risk, with some exploratory data suggesting a potential similar benefit of GLP-1 receptor agonists. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favourite app or recommend us to your colleagues. For more free CME in diabetes, go to knowledgeinpractice.eu and you can stay up to date by following us on Twitter at DKI Practice or connecting on LinkedIn. You can find links to these in the episode notes as well as all of the references discussed today. Join us for the next episode with Professor Ian DeBoer to discuss optimal collaboration between specialists in diabetes and nephrology.